Well, thank you so much, Amy. And uh, we are proud and privileged to support and work with First Choice uh, in their mission. Now, here at NBC, we believe the Scriptures advocate for the care and protection for the vulnerable and overlooked in our world. And the work of First Choice saves the lives of the most vulnerable in our world, the unborn. And so today, I would like to add my voice to this critical conversation. We'll be taking a one-week break from our Roman series today. Now, preaching a sanctity of human life message is sobering for me, but I must confess, I find myself saddened. I'm not saddened about what the Bible says or that we should preach and advocate for the protection of all human life. No, I'm saddened that we even need to talk about it at all. The idea of aborting an unborn child or abusing a born child or starving an elderly person, all of these scenarios should break our heart. And yet, we find ourselves in a curious cultural moment. So for just a second, let's look back over the year of 2019. On January 22nd, 2019, the 46th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the Reproductive Health Act, which became a polarizing piece of abortion legislation. This act codified into law the legality of abortion up until the point of birth. Now, even more striking was the response, cheering in the halls of the New York State Capitol, and One World Trade Center being lit up in pink to celebrate. The scene recalled, in my mind, Paul's warning at the end of Romans 1, be careful what you celebrate. You may ask, when did the taking of unborn life become a reason to cheer? In response, from March to May, the states of Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, and Ohio passed laws that banned abortion after a heartbeat could be detected. Alabama passed a law banning all abortion with the exception of the woman's health and life. Now, after these laws were passed, Hollywood got involved. Since many movies are currently filmed in Georgia, production companies like Netflix threatened to take their business out of the state. A group of actors wrote a joint letter to Governor Brian Kemp, which stated this, we can't imagine being elected officials who had to say to their constituents, I enacted a law that was so evil, it chased billions of dollars out of your state's economy. It's not the most effective campaign slogan, but rest assured, we'll make it yours should it come to pass. Now, let me get this straight. Preserving life because there is a heartbeat is evil? This was the conversation happening in 2019. Now, this Wednesday is another anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the 47th, as you heard, to be exact. In 2019, the abortion rhetoric ramped up. And we may ask ourselves, what will be our response? Because if we're sitting here today as people of faith, will we add our voices in the protection, protection of the most vulnerable in society, the unborn. 2019 proved to be a year of cultural collision, and sadly, 2020 hasn't started off any better. And it would seem that there is a growing hostility towards those who hold a pro-life position. Abortion rights advocates view conscientious objection as a threat because abortion is a deeply divisive moral issue. There is a chasm in worldview differences on this subject. Now, a very recent case in point is the acceptance speech that actress Michelle Williams offered at the Golden Globe Awards last week. While receiving her award, she said this, 
She said, I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose, to choose when to have my children and with whom. Now, that statement is breathtaking. I mean, think about what she said for just a second. Essentially, she declared, I would not have won this award if I did not have an abortion. Now, appropriately, these comments caused a firestorm online because it was a stunning admission of worldview because the current cultural narrative is this, abortion must be accepted. Again, it reminds me of Paul's words from last week where he said their foolish hearts were darkened. And the tension we feel is galvanized in these questions. What are we to do? How do we respond? Well, I need to say up front that a topic like the sanctity of human life is very, very sensitive. I'm not trying to politicize this issue. This is not about right and left. This is about right and wrong. And I also want to acknowledge several groups of people here today. First, you're listening today, and maybe you are pro-life. You're concerned about the current issue in our, the current state of our society, and you want to do something. Well, I'm with you. And I hope to offer some practical steps in this message. Second, you may be listening today, and you're pro-choice. You think that abortion is a complicated issue, and we shouldn't talk about it in simplistic categories. I understand your concern, and I hope that you will consider some of the points I offer today. Third, maybe you say you're pro-life, but it doesn't make much difference in your life. Frankly, you wish people would just stop arguing about this topic. I hope to move you toward greater conviction on this issue. And finally, and as Amy mentioned, you may be here today and you've experienced an abortion, or you're listening Maybe you took part in abortion, or you know someone who has. I'm so sorry you went through that, but I want you to know that the God of the Bible meets us where we are and can bring redemption into any situation. He loves you unconditionally. As we heard already sung today, he is our living hope. This is not about the past. It is about the future. Author and pro-life advocate Stephanie Gray wrote a book entitled Love Unleashes Life, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth. I am indebted to her work for part of this message. But I love that title, Love Unleashes Life. We need to be people known for our love. And in our current cultural moment, we must be a people who are known for two loves at least. First, we must love the truth and second, we must love people. We'll take those each in turn, but first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I don't know everybody's story as they've walked in here today, as they're watching online, as they're listening to this maybe later on. But Lord, I do know that you knew us before you were born, before we were born. You know every, you knew every hair on our head, Lord. You know everything we've done and are yet to do. And you sent your son to die for us, to die a brutal death on the cross, to cover over a multitude of sins, Lord. And so I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would minister to us where we are and that we would leave this place with a greater conviction for life, Lord, but also a greater trust in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we must love the truth. 
Now, you may be sitting here today, or you're, again, you're listening at home, and you may think, well, again, why is this such a big deal? Can't we just agree to disagree? Well, I would suggest that is something we say on minor issues like tastes in movies or uh, music or restaurants. But on the issue of life, I have to respectfully say that agreeing to disagree is not an option. For example, imagine you saw someone about to throw a baby off a bridge. I hope you would run up to them and tell them that they were wrong and try to stop them. But if they disagreed with you and said you were wrong, would you respond by saying, let's agree to disagree? No. No, the issue is too important. In fact, throughout church history, the issue of life has always been a top-tier issue. Now, the modern pro-life movement was a reaction to the 1973 legalization of abortion, but the issue of life has been a long-held conviction of the church. Dr. Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, writes this. He says, the pro-life movement was connected intrinsically to the church's witness to human dignity, going all the way back to the church's emergence in Jerusalem in the first century. Christians who object to the violence of abortion are in continuity with a long tradition of Christian teaching against the oppression of the vulnerable and against the disposability of human life. In other words, Christians believe that all people are made in the image of God, and therefore all people have value, even unborn people. Amen. But you may ask, how did we get to these toxic debates of 2019? Well, let me share a bit about the legal history of the abortion debate. First, most of you are probably aware that Roe versus Wade began the modern debate. In this case, Norma McCorvey or Jane Roe claimed that she had been raped and that the Texas law was forcing her to continue her pregnancy, even though she was impregnated against her will. The court ruled in her favor, stating that a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion, basing their reasoning on the 14th Amendment and a woman's right to privacy. It also ruled that the state has an interest in protecting the potential life of the fetus, and the court arbitrarily separated the pregnancy into three trimesters. Basically, after the first trimester, abortion was still available, but not entirely on demand. Second, there was another case decided on the same day in 1973 called Doe v. Bolton. This case allowed physicians to ex ex exercise medical judgment for abortions. If, in the doctor's opinion, the life and health of the mother was at risk, then an abortion could occur. However, it's important to note that this case vastly expanded what was meant by the life and health of the mother. A third case was decided in 1993 called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in this case, the court again reasoned that abortion rights are consistent with a woman's right to privacy. But it placed some restrictions on abortion, such as a 24-hour waiting period, along with notification of the risks, as well as parental consent for minors. Now, there was a few other cases along the way, but these are three big ones. And I will point out that due to these laws, in our state of New Jersey, abortion is legal up until the point of birth. Now, again, you may be listening to this message and you're saying, this is a complicated issue. In fact, it's not clear when life begins. So why should we care? Well, I want to answer that from two angles. First, from the biblical angle, and second, from a scientific angle. So first, let me talk about the biblical basis. 
if you are a follower of Christ here today, you likely use the Bible as your moral authority, or I, I hope you do. So does the Bible say anything about abortion? While the Bible doesn't specifically use the word abortion, I believe there is an ethic that we can draw from the Scriptures. So first, I would say that the overall tone of the Scriptures is pro-life. For example, if you look in the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20.13 or Deuteronomy 5, the Sixth Commandment is clear. You shall not murder, it says. Additionally, murder made it on the list of Paul's sins mentioned in Romans 1.29. Now, again, you may object and say, you believe the unborn child is not a person. We'll come back to that argument in a moment. But if we do indeed conclude that the unborn child is a person, we would have to admit that abortion is murder, which the Scriptures resoundingly forbid. So does the Bible indicate when life actually begins? Well, several passages use conception and birth interchangeably. For example, Job 3.3 says this, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. Now, Dr. Scott Ray notes that this passage uses a poetic device called synonymous parallelism. And that term means that the second line of poetry restates the first one. It says the same thing in different language. In other words, the child who was born and conceived is the same person. Or put another way, since born and conceived are used interchangeably, it suggests this child was a person both at birth and conception. Now, another passage uh, that uses the same poetic device is Jeremiah 1.5, where God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations." Now, as we read that text, it seems reasonable to conclude that God had an intimate relationship with Jeremiah when he was in the womb and also as an adult. Notice that God says, in the womb, I appointed you as a prophet. The calling to prophetic ministry was typically done when someone was older and mature. But here God says it of unborn Jeremiah. In other words, God had a plan for Jeremiah's life even before he was born. Now, I want to pause and take that in for a second. Because if God knew Jeremiah this intimately before he was born, would we not have to conclude that he was a person with a plan for his life? God will famously say later in the book of Jeremiah, I have a hope and a plan for you. I pray that verse over my daughter every night because I believe that he does have a hope and a plan for her But I also believe that he had a hope and a plan for her before she was born, when she was in the womb. Do you believe that God had a hope and a plan for you before you were born? Well, perhaps the most well-known passage that speaks of life in the womb is Psalm 139, 13 to 16, where the psalmist writes this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. When I was a child, my mother loved to knit. And she was very talented at it. In fact, she would knit hats and she would knit scarves. She still does. She would knit blankets. By the way, if you didn't know this, we have a yarn crafters ministry here at NBC 
who knit prayer shawls and hats for those in need, especially during the winter months, because I don't know if you walked outside yesterday, but it was cold. Now, I can still picture my mother working the needles, weaving the yarn together. It it was a beautiful masterpiece when she was done. My mother put care into each one of her creations, and so does God. It was a labor of love. It says he knit us, you and me, together when? After we were born? When we were two years old? No, in the womb. Before we were born. The psalmist continues in verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now just take that passage in because it indicates that God knew each of us before we were born and he knows when we will die. And if you read the whole psalm, you will see that the same person who is known by God in the womb also asks God to know him inside and out when he is an adult. Now, from a Christian worldview, this passage should be enough to discourage abortion because it interprets, interrupts, I should say, the sovereign work of God. But perhaps you're here today and you don't have a Christian worldview, and you're wondering what science says about the beginning of life. Well, let's turn there now to the scientific consensus. And in order to discuss this, I wanted to mention two of the most common arguments for the pro-choice position. The first is this, and it's the most common argument. A woman has the right to do with her own body whatever she chooses. This is the foundational pro-choice argument. A woman has a right to privacy under the Constitution. However, the reasoning is, is problematic since the fetus is not technically part of the woman's body. It is genetically distinct and has its own genetic code. This is even more apparent today with the advances in the field of genetics as well as ultrasounds. It is hard to go to even an early ultrasound to look at the screen and not conclude that there is another human being inside the mother. Now, a second argument that can be used goes like this. Society should not force a woman to bring unwanted children into the world. And this argument includes an objection based on economic hardship for the mother, as well as the possibility of birthing severely handicapped children. But all these arguments assume that the fetus is not a person. After all, if we were to agree that the fetus is a person, then ending their life would be something unimaginable. Transparently, I would share with you that my wife and I have walked through several miscarriages, They were very difficult, and if you are listening or you're here today and you've walked through even one miscarriage, I am am deeply sorry. All of our miscarriages were very early on, but, but one time we did opt to go to the emergency room. And as the doctor was telling us that we lost the baby, he said these words. He said, you should grieve just like it was an actual loss. And I wanted to say to him, because it is an actual loss. And I share this story to highlight the conflict in worldview. Because do you see, people want to argue that life doesn't begin at conception, but when a miscarriage occurs, they want you to treat it like a person died. When an abortion occurs, it's not murder, but if a pregnant woman is killed, it's a double homicide under the law. It's a bit of a contradiction. 
So we must finish this section by discussing the personhood debate. When does a fetus become a person and therefore deserve basic human rights like the right to life? People suggest a wide variety of what they call decisive moments. Uh, Some will argue for the point of viability, which is around 24 to 27 weeks of gestation when the fetus can live on its own outside the womb with medical help. Others will argue for the detection of brain waves, and still others will say it is the moment of sentience when a baby can feel pain. Now, the problem with all these arguments is that they are basing their view of human rights on human behavior. When does someone start behaving like a human? For example, Princeton philosophy professor Dr. Peter Singer makes this argument. He says, a person is someone who is conscious, rational, and self-aware. But if I accept that definition, my, my two-year-old doesn't meet all those criteria. And so do you see the problem? In response, I think we can argue that human rights and personhood are based on someone being human, not merely behaving like a human. Now, there's a few other decisive moments that people mention, but as we have already seen in the scriptures, life begins at conception. Does science back that up? Well, many will argue that this is an irrefutable fact of biology. In fact, when considered alongside the law of biogenesis, the law that every species reproduces after its own kind, we can draw only one conclusion in regard to abortion, that no matter what the circumstances of conception, no matter how far along in the pregnancy, abortion always ends an individual human life. And every honest abortion advocate concedes this fact. But again, don't take my word for it. If you come back to Dr. Singer, he writes this in his book, Practical Ethics. It's a little technical, but stick with me. He says, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. But he says this, in this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. Now, let me just say, Peter Singer is not my friend. In fact, he is one of the most ardent abortion advocates out there, and even he says there is no doubt it's a human being. In other words, he sees no problem with ending a human life. Now, other prominent defenders of abortion rights readily admit that abortion kills human beings, but they say it's still morally defensible. Multiple modern textbooks, which you can see on the screen here, on the subject of embryology, all agree that human development begins at fertilization. And so, friends, we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with ending human life? And are we comfortable sitting by complacently and watch people celebrate the ending of human life? Now again, I don't know everyone in this room or everybody listening. And again, if you're someone who's experienced an abortion, I am am so, so sorry. I'm not trying to heap any more guilt upon anyone. Jesus comes and he gives life and his blood covers a multitude of sins. I am trying to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves the baby, the most helpless among us. And so we need to be people who love the truth. And the truth is that life begins at conception and the ending of human life should break our hearts. That should guide how we advocate. But in the midst of loving truth, we also need to consider the people involved. 
we need to love those people. And that is point two. We need to love people. As I mentioned at the beginning, Stephanie Gray wrote this great book entitled Love Unleashes Life. And in the book, she gives some very practical ways to communicate a pro-life position. I highly recommend it. It's short. It's accessible. And if you're someone who holds a pro-life position, I encourage you to talk with other people about it. I encourage you to try to persuade people to the cause of life. While doing that, we should remember two sections of Scripture. First, Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All people are made in God's image. And I think there's a tendency in this debate to demonize people on the other side. Indeed, I would argue that we should disagree strongly with people like Peter Singer, but even Peter Singer has a story. We have to remember that even he needs love. As we speak with people with whom we disagree, let's remember the words of James 3, 9 to 10, who said, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Friends, advocate for life. Advocate strongly. But respect other image bearers who don't agree. What does that look like? Well, often, rather than calling people pro-choice or pro-life, the opposite side will use terms like baby killers and anti-abortion. And this is not respectful and does not take into account where the other person is coming from. Instead, we should remember that all people are made in the image of God and deserve reasoned, thoughtful arguments. Because if we didn't shout and slander, I wonder if we actually might win more people to the cause of life. Stephanie Gray is a master at this. If we're going to advocate a pro-life position, she asserts, we need to learn three things. First, she says, we must learn to communicate well. And in order to communicate well, she says, we must let love be our aim. Because when we love people, we care enough about them to tell them the truth, even on the issue of abortion. And that takes bravery. But in our culture, people don't want to offend anyone. We just want to be nice and get along. But this is an issue of life and death, and we can't afford to simply be nice. Author Matthew Kelly writes this. He says, Our culture has reduced all virtue to the universal virtue of niceness, which is no virtue at all. People comment, Oh, she's such a nice woman, or he is such a nice man, which in essence very often means that this man or woman never says or does anything to upset the person making the comment, never ruffles any feathers, never challenges anyone to rise to greater virtue. Friends, we don't need nicer people in this world. We need people who love well. And being loving is much different than being nice. So Kelly concludes, he says, love makes demands upon us. To love someone, someone means that from time to time you will be required by that love to tell some, someone something they would rather not hear. And when it comes to the issue of life, it's an opportunity to love people well not to simply agree to disagree. Now, communicating well also requires empathy. When speaking with people about the topic of abortion, it is important that we empathize with the point of the other person. Now, initially, that may sound counterintuitive, but 
I agree, but I agree and, and would say that there is a, um, I guarantee you there is a story as to why that person is advocating so hard for abortion. Maybe they had one and they're embarrassed. Maybe someone they love was suffering greatly and they felt abortion was a way to end that suffering. My point is, you don't know. And empathizing with the other person always allows you to find common ground so the conversation can go deeper. Now, second, she says we must communicate to the head. In her books, Gray offers a number of strategies to appeal to head arguments, and I've already mentioned a number in this message, so I'm not going to retread here. However, I will simply say that making intellectual appeals is necessary, but a more common objection we will face is an argument from the heart from emotions. And so finally, we need to communicate to the heart. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Stephanie Gray tells the story of talking with students at a pro-life exhibit on a university campus. She says for over an hour, she and one of her teammates were in an intense conversation about abortion with a young man named Pete. They made their best arguments for the pro-life position from science and philosophy, but he was not convinced And Stephanie writes, after introductions, Pete and I started debating. And after at least 30 minutes of going around in circles about when biological life begins and how personhood is defined, I started to notice something about Pete's rhetoric. He repeatedly mentioned suffering and was arguing that abortion was needed in such situations. And so Stephanie paused and asked him, do you know anyone who suffered a lot? And he told her that his mom and siblings suffered because they lived in poverty and had nothing. His mom was beaten so bad by her husband that she ran away and lived on the streets. Stephanie says, in that moment I had a revelation. Pete didn't want to kill humans. He cared for humans so much he didn't want them to suffer the way his mom and he had suffered. Now that didn't make his solution, abortion, the right one but it did shed some light on where he was coming from. Now, do you see what she did? She learned where he was coming from, that this ardent pro-abortion advocate had a story that Stephanie tapped into. And that's not to say that every time will lead to a conversion of people to the pro-life position, but it does tell them other people care enough about them to ask about their life. Now, she offers numerous other examples in the book, but you get the idea. So communicating to the heart means we learn to ask good questions so we can show love to people with whom we disagree. Questions like, do you know anybody who's experienced suffering? Why do you think abortion will help? Have you given yourself permission to grieve? And when we ask good questions, a door opens for more conversation. Loving people means we learn to communicate well, it means we communicate to the head, and we communicate to the heart. And that's why I'm thankful for the ministry of First Choice Women's Resource Center, because Amy and her team are doing all these steps and lives are being saved. In fact, in just the last few months, I've seen posts Amy's made on Facebook asking for prayers for women who were considering abortion, and their team convinced them otherwise. You heard one story here today. Another woman had taken an abortion pill and regretted it. First Choice was able to prescribe medicine to reverse it. And every time I see that, I get down on my knees and I pray for that little life to be saved. And so, thank you. 
thank you for what you're doing. Because when we speak to people about this issue and when we pray for people, we are advancing a culture of life in our world. Pope John Paul II is the one who coined the terms culture of life and culture of death. And the message of the culture of death says that some lives don't matter. That if you're unborn or if you're old and dying or if you're disabled, your life doesn't matter as much as someone who is perceived as healthy. You are expendable. You may not know this, but in Iceland, they are trying to end Down syndrome through the propagation of abortion. Advances in genetic testing now give people the ability to find out early and make a decision to end life. Or take China, a country that is known for repeated human rights violations. Because of their one-child policy, they have ended over 350 million lives through abortion, which dwarves what we've experienced in the U.S., That number is breathtaking. This is a global problem. The message of the culture of death is that some lives don't matter, so it's morally permissible to end them. But the culture of life says that all life matters and has value. And if you're sitting here today and you are a pro-life advocate, it should affect how you view not just abortion, but how you view adoption. It should affect how you care for the poor and disabled, the elderly in our society, and those from underprivileged communities. Pro-life means the whole of life. Russell Moore says this. He says, our pro-life witness ought to be seen in Sunday schools filled with children with fetal alcohol syndrome and autism and cerebral palsy and AIDS who are hugged and loved and received because we see in them Jesus And because we embrace a gospel that told us a long time ago that life is better than death. Amen? Life is better than death, and we should know better than anyone that our Savior came to give life because he overcame death. So when the culture of death around us shouts about death, let us shout back the words of Jesus who said, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. At the enemy... The enemy invented the culture of death, but Jesus advances the culture of life. And I have to say, if you're here today again and you've had an abortion, or you've taken part in one, don't let the enemy tell you that there's no hope. Don't let the enemy tell you that you can never be redeemed because the blood of Jesus covers over all our sins. The gospel is good news for all sinners no matter what we have done. But now, the righteousness of God has been made known. Jesus died for you to wash you clean. Receive that today. Believe that today. So what do we do now? How do we advocate for life to the full? Well, first, as it relates to abortions, we need to have more conversations about it. Stephanie Gray says that when she speaks with people about the subject of abortion, she always offers what she calls a seven-day, three-person challenge. And it goes like this. In the next week, I want you to approach three people and ask them what they think about abortion. Now, I know for many of us that is uncomfortable. But for example, you could speak with a friend and say, hey, I went to church last week and my pastor preached on abortion. What do you think about it? If you want some more tools in this area, I would remind you that NBC puts out an Underground Sessions podcast where we discuss difficult issues. Amy and I did an episode on abortion back in October, and I encourage you to check it out. 
Again, it is uncomfortable, but think about it this way. If you have a conversation with a friend, you never know how it will influence their view of abortion. And maybe your friend will influence someone else and keep them from having an abortion. Those conversations equal lives saved. Now, another way to take action is to volunteer with First Choice. They need counselors and nurses and others who can help their organization run. Perhaps the next time Amy posts on Facebook about a woman who chose life, you will be the one who helped her make that decision. Give to Baby Bottle Boomerang and help them raise the money they need to save lives. And finally, be informed. Know what is happening in the law and make your voice be heard as much as you can. And I also want to say that abortion doesn't just affect women. Men are impacted as well. In fact, we have a men's breakfast coming up in February that will feature a male speaker who was affected by abortion. And so if you're a guy, you don't want to miss that. At the end of the day, I encourage you to become an advocate for life, not death. And in doing so, you will help transform the world and become an ambassador for our Savior. The psalmist tells us, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. They are a gift. And if indeed children are a gift, they are certainly not a gift we should take for granted, nor should we treat this gift with anything less than gratitude. Now, I wanted to preach a Sanctity of Human Life message because this has been near and dear to my heart of late. For those of you that are here don't know, Amanda and I found out recently we're pregnant with our second child. Because we've had some miscarriages, we wanted to go for an early ultrasound at six weeks. And we still remember being in the doctor's office and hearing our baby's heartbeat at six weeks old. Six weeks. And as I stood there, the words of the psalmist reverberated through my mind and heart. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. And so as we close, I, I want to share just a little bit more about our story. Because you see, Amanda and I were trying for almost two years before we got pregnant this time. And I know, I know, for some out there, two years is a short amount of time. And my heart goes out to you. Two years, several miscarriages, and we were starting to doubt whether we would be able to have another child naturally. And it was during this season that we spent more time with our friend Barbara Zellman. Now, if you don't know Barbara, she passed away this fall, but she was a rock of our church for many years. And knowing our situation, Barbara started to pray for us. And if you know Barbara, again, she's a woman of prayer. And one day, she took Amanda out to lunch and announced very confidently that she had been praying for us, and God told her that we would get pregnant and we would have a boy. And at the time, we thought, well, that's nice. We'll see what happens. (laughs) In early November, I came home from the office, and Amanda surprised me with the news that we were pregnant again. And we were so excited to tell Barbara that Sunday. But on Friday, I got a call that Barbara had been rushed to the hospital, and it didn't look good. And Amanda and I went to see her that night, and even though she was unconscious, at her bedside, we told her the news that we were pregnant and thanked her for our prayer, her prayers. Barbara passed away the next day. Two weeks ago, we found out we're having a baby boy. <laughs> Children are a gift from the Lord, a reward from Him. And every child, ours included, is a gift. So I wonder today... 
if you would be like my good friend Barbara and pray. Would you pray that people's hearts are awakened to see that every life is precious? Would you pray for those who are affected by abortion? Would you raise a voice for the vulnerable children in this world because God loved us so much that he died for us and his love unleashed life in a dying world? May our love unleash life in the same way. Amen? Amen. I'd call the worship team back on stage for one final song, and as they come, can I pray for you, please? Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we know that this is such a challenging, difficult topic, Lord. I know there's those out there that have been affected by this, and Lord, I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would wrap your arms around my friends here today, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be moved by the cause of life. I pray that we would get down on our knees and that we would cry out, not only for babies, but for those that are affected, Lord. I pray that you would help us to trust you more. And above all, Lord, I pray that we would be people of love, people who love the truth, but also love people involved. Help us, Lord, and may you receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.